Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you. You're also welcome to look on your electronic device as well. We've been working our way through the, the book of 1 Corinthians for quite some time now, and we have turned to a whole new section of the letter where the, the next three big sections that the Apostle Paul is going to, uh, led by the Spirit, going to lean into are questions based around gathering as a church, what it means for, for them to have order and authority with inside the church, and then after that will be the Lord's Supper, and then after that will be the spiritual gifts in the church as well. And this is, this is really what, as, we, as elders, we prayed about what book to go to. We really wanted to kind of get to the spiritual gifts, so I'm excited that we're finally turning to that chapter after we've gotten through a lot of really hard stuff. Uh, before we get into this, I want to just kind of remind you of a couple things in the culture that's, that's existent during the first century Corinth, because it's really vital for us to understand that in context to where we're at today. Corinth was an incredibly liberal city. Uh, it was rampant, full of homosexuality, full of sexual immorality. There were pagan gods everywhere. Aphrodite was the biggest one. She was the god of sex. And there were some thousand temple prostitutes in that place, both men and women, for, for people to worship Aphrodite and then engage in sexual relations in that, that form of worship. It was I mean, just rampant. I mean, just everywhere and anywhere. It was a port city, so thousands of people in there. Many slaves were in place there. In fact, we don't have a modern-day example that even comes close to what Corinth was like. The, 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 some of the most liberal or worst, like hard or, or, or progressive-ish, or however you want to use the word, or whatever word you want to use to, to, of cities we have today, pale in comparison to what Corinth was like. Corinth was predominantly a Greco, it was a Greco-Roman society, so it was many Greeks, many Romans, very few Jews. There were some Jews there, but it was predominantly run and, and led by Greeks and Romans. And this, this area, because of what was going on, the letter that came in questions to the Apostle Paul while he's pastoring in Ephesus after he'd been there on his second missionary journey and planted the church, spent 18 months there, there's a bunch of questions that were sent back to him saying, hey, we're really struggling with some stuff. What was going on with the church in Corinth was that the church in Corinth looked too much like the culture in Corinth. There was no real, real kind of differentiation. So, so a lot of the pagan ritualistic practices of, of ceremonies worked their way into the church. And a lot of the, the issues that the, the, the Gentile believers had were really struggling with understanding what it meant to follow God and live for him. And so this was a really big and difficult issue happening in the church of Corinth. There was many, many people that had um, all sorts of different issues. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting about this time is that Corinth didn't operate as, as specifically like a patriarchal society in the most. It was very much run by women. Because of Aphrodite and some of the other gods that they worshipped, women really ran this area. And that's not, not necessarily say anything other than that's what the context is for this letter hitting in this place. It's super important for us to understand this because of the text where we are today. The scripture where we are today, um, it's really easy for us to, and many people have tried to do this, to explain away certain things that are taught in scriptures and base it on culture. 
and say, well, that was just what was culturally relevant in that day and age, so it's not culturally relevant today, and so therefore we don't have to really follow it. The, the thing is, 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 think about it this way. If you traveled to any other country in the world today, you would experience a different culture. Culture would be different. If you look back across the history of just the United States, look at how culture has shifted. See, culture will always change. The theology of God does not. The understanding of who God is and what scriptures say he is is, is, the, is valid as in any culture. Our role as Christians today is to figure out how do we live submitted to the scriptures, submitted to what God has in place in light of the culture that he has placed us in in this time and this day and age. It's not that we need to let culture dictate our theology. In fact, it's the other way. Our theology should dictate what culture we start living out and how we operate and live within the culture. So when people say, well, you know, this is just cultural, that's why we, we do this, it's, it's really kind of a pointless argument because the entire Bible is written around culture. And there are cultures that are going to be specific or in places that make sense for one culture to another. And so, so no matter what you think when it comes to those things, we have to understand that this is dropping on a culture that isn't like anything that we have today. But in this text, I believe there's some truths that are so big and so powerful and so wonderful for us to grab a hold of and play and live and, and, and put in place of our lives today that I just, I hope that you guys will really, really let the Lord work on you. I want to give you a little bit of a disclaimer. This is a very difficult text. A very difficult test because all of us come with our presuppositions to the scripture. We have these beliefs, these understandings of who we are, what we think when it comes to scripture, or because of the lack of something in our life, we then put our understanding of scripture this way. And so this is a very difficult scripture. This is one that, that there have been, unfortunately, a lot of bad theology has come out of it and then has per perpetuated some kind of bad theology practices. And so I, I don't come to this scripture with immense excitement because of that, but we as a church are committed to teaching through scriptures. And that means that we're going to come across texts at times that we may not want to, and I don't necessarily want to, but we submit ourselves to the Lord's will and we trust that his word is living and active and all of it is meant to be taught to us, not just the portions we like. So that being said, you may be triggered by a few things. You may struggle. You may ask some really hard questions or, ask, or ask, need to ask some hard questions of what you believe. I would encourage you to do that, to sit in this, to stay. Let's work through this and let's trust the Lord and his work and what the Spirit wants to do with us. So with that long opening disclaimer, let's go ahead and dig in to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 is where we're going to pick up. Now, trigger, 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 confrontational, difficult, difficult, difficult. Awesome. Amen, guys. God bless you. Have a great day, right? Okay, I'll read it. Can't get out of it. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it, would, it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, nevertheless, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. 
And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. It is proper for a wife to pray to God with her head covered, uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So the ushers are going to go around passing out scissors to cut any man buns off to follow this scripture. I'm just kidding. That's not happening. Just kidding. This is a really interesting set of scripture. It starts out, and we're, gonna, we're just going to dig in. Again, this is the beginning of, uh, we're trying to understand the order of the church, and that's what this rest of the, the next three chapters are for. 12, 11 through 14 are basically, this is what the order of church gathering, what, what, what worship is to look like. And so as we dig into this section, the first thing he says, he says, look, I, I commend you. In the, in the next section, when we get to the Lord's Supper, he says, I do not commend you. And in the third section, when he gets to the spiritual gifts, he actually rebukes them. And so we see that he's doing this. Now, most scholars think that what he's commending isn't necessarily that they're doing a great job, even though that's what it says. They're trying, it's that they're actually trying to. These questions came to him with a desire to honor God inside of this context and inside of this section of, um, of understanding what God wants from them. And so when he says commend, really what he's saying is, I commend you. The traditions Paul delivered to the Corinthian Christians were simply the teachings and practices of Jesus. And he's saying, I commend you for wanting to follow the practices of Jesus. But, but, I don't want you to miss this. I want you to understand this. What you, what you do, but I want you to understand. And then he goes into verse three and he says, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is is God. Now, don't miss this. This is such a big point for us to get. He, he lays out this. He says, look, the, the head of a man is Christ, but the head of a woman is man, and then the head of Christ is God. So in this section, we see that there's the scholars will kind of go all over on what the word head can be translated. There's many different options, but the one that makes the most sense in the context of here and then the way it's used throughout Scripture is that head is actually the authority. So when you read it, it's, it's that, that, man, um, that Christ is the authority of man, and the, and the authority of, of wife is man, and the authority of Christ is God. Now, that's, that's huge, and stay with me for a second. I want to tell you why I think it says that. First, let's look at Ephesians 1, verse 22. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, and he put all things under his feet, feet and gave him as, there's the word, head over all things to the church. No one would, would argue that Jesus is the authority to the church. That's a, that's a common, like most Christians all agree, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is our authority. Great. Okay, Colossians 1, 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. There it is, the head. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the entire fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're going to talk more about authority, but we have to establish something really, really important here that is, that is just profound for us to just kind of overlay the rest we're studying here. If, if this is to be read as authority, if this is to make sense that this is authority, then we see something profound. We see that Jesus says that God is the authority of him. That may seem pretty common for us, but we have to remember that Jesus isn't like God Jr., all the fullness of God dwells in. We see that in Colossians. We, we have to understand that, that Jesus is as important as God, his role, his value, he is fully God. Fully God. There's not like a, oh, he's, he's kind of partially. No, Jesus is fully God. They are equal. But 
Christ has never been before, during, or after his incarnation in any way inferior in essence to the Father. But in his incarnation, he willingly subordinated himself. You got to see that this is important. He willingly subordinated himself to the Father in his role as Savior and Redeemer. He lovingly subjected himself completely to his Father's will as an act of humble obedience and fulfilling the divine purpose. We have to see that because because in Jesus, we see that the, the model for submission for women is found in Jesus. The model for leadership or authority in in, in men is found in Jesus. Jesus is the one that sets the model for both. And we have to see that. If if he had left the Christ is out from God, we could have read this totally different. But the fact that he lumps that in while speaking about the order that is is significant in the church, it's it's so valuable. It's why Jesus can say, um, the Father is greater than I in John 14, 28. Or he can say the same thing. I and the Father are one in John 10, 30, because he is one with the Father, but yet he's submitted. When he's in the garden, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be in authority, but also to be in submission. The, the kind of the big nerdy word for what is being talked about is functional subordination. It's a, it's a, theo- a systematic theology that's put in place that says that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one, equal, but there is also a role distinction that's established between them, a willingly set in motion role. And so we see this, this idea, okay, that, that, that what the Lord wants us to see is that there's, there's some form of authority happening inside the church that's important. I want to real quickly say this because it's important as we go on. It says, every man, in verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head Covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair and shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, what's going on here is we have to understand in Corinth, a sign of an adulterous woman was a shaved head. If there was any form of immorality, any kind of adultery, any kind of any affair that had happened, the woman was required, was shamed to, to shave her head. And so when she walked around, people looked at her and said, she had adultery. She committed adultery. She did something wrong. She's, she's an issue. She's a problem. That's what they're saying. And so when he says, look, you can't cover your head. You need to do this. He's, he's saying, look, it's, it's, it's like they should just be disgraced. Why? Now, first off, I want to be really clear. He's not saying that women shouldn't pray, prophesy in church. You notice that. He says, when she does. Prophecy is, is one of those things that I'm really excited to get to, and we're going to spend a ton of time through 12 through 14. But just so we have a basic understanding, it, it, prophecy and the way it kind of played out in first century Corinth it, during their gatherings, um, people would hear from the Holy Spirit. They would stand up and speak of images or pictures or scripture, always something that was led by the Holy Spirit, always under authority, but it was anyone it wasn't just the pastor speaking, or it wasn't anyone. It was anyone that was able to do that, and they would, they would, they would have an order with it, and we're going to talk about that, and I can't wait to get there. But that's what he's talking about here. And so what was happening is these women were, were getting up and prophesying with their head uncovered. <gasps> oh, no, right? Everyone in here with their hats on or not, like, be careful, right? No, why is that such a big deal? In their culture, in their culture, this shows something drastically different. So remember when I said at the beginning, we have to pull theology out of culture and recognize. So today, if someone came, a woman with her hair down, no one's gonna be like, oh, she's got her hair down. In Corinth, if you had your hair down as a female, if your hair was worn down, it, it meant two things. One of two things. You were either a prostitute or you were available. And so a married woman going to church with her hair down 
would have been a complete disastrous thing in a marriage. And, and, and some scholars believe it could be one of two reasons why women were doing this. If we go in context to where the scripture just lays out, they were doing it because they were free, right? There's been this whole argument, the last three chapters, I'll have to go back and listen to it. I don't have time to cover it today. But the idea that they were free to operate, they were free to do what they wanted to do. And so they were going ahead and saying, well, I'm free. I don't have to have my head covered in anything else. And, and he's saying, no, no, hang on. Just because you have freedom doesn't mean you're supposed to do it. That's what we talked about in the last three chapters. But he's saying, look, you can't, you can't have your head uncovered or remove your veil because what you're saying, what you're displaying to the church and the people around is that you're available. For men, now, why would it be a shame for men to have their head covered? And some like, is he talking about the hair? Is he talking like all the guys long hair in here? Like, time to go get a haircut? Like, is that, is that what he's talking about? No, really in, in Corinth in that day, there were two things that would happen. First off, inside of the pagan rituals that were just everywhere, from Aphrodite to the sun god, all Zeus, all the, all the rituals, what would happen is the priest, priest or priestess, would, would take the fold of their toga and, and pull it over their head, and they would do their sacrifices with their head covered. And so, so in one way, he's saying, look, why would you bring a pagan practice into the worship of the one true God? Covering your head is, is foolishness. Why would you ever do that? And then the other thing, in this day and age, again, and this is something to know there, men with long hair predominantly meant that they were homosexual. That's what this means in this culture. And so, and we've already talked about that in chapter five. You can go back and listen to that message. But, but he says, look, both are not right you're not, you're not operating within the, the way that you were created to operate. You were created as male and female. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. So he's basically saying, look, wherever you are, whenever it is, whatever's appropriate for men and women to pray or prophesy, they should do so with the proper distinctions between male and female, not blur those lines, meaning a man should worship God as a man and a woman should worship God as a woman. That's essentially what he's establishing here with the head shaven and all that stuff. Saying, look, it's very important that you stay true to the roles that God designed. And then in verse 7, he goes on and says, For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, I could see that trigger a lot of female in here. Let's, let me just talk about that here. First off, glory, it's not talking about um, bringing glory the way that we did, but more, I think, of an honor thing. If you've spent any time around me and my wife, you know that I married way outside of my league. Okay, like she is like way better than me, okay? I have no right winning that one over, right? It's just awesome, praise God. What he's saying here is that in a healthy marriage, in a healthy design, look, that does not mean that my wife can't bring glory to God. When she submits herself to the Lord, she brings glory to God. That was the whole chapter, or the whole verses right before this. Our purpose in everything we do, do for the glory of God. So it's not that she can't, but what he's saying is when you operate inside the roles that God created, you are bringing glory to God, you're bringing honor to it. So when I operate the way that God commands in me as a, as a husband to lead and to, to, with the authority that God has done, modeled after Jesus, then Jen has the opportunity to thrive and to be amazing. When Jen submits herself to the Lord and follows the roles that she's given, it brings honor to our marriage, which in turn brings honor to God. See, we see the role distinction in our culture so much as, as, a, as, a, as a fight, as a battle. But when the roles are done well, guys, people, it's beautiful. And that's what he's saying. He's saying glory can be brought in this way. And he goes on in verse 8, and he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. 
Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now he's doing something really, really brilliant. And this is why I believe it's important for us to look not just at culture and then try and throw away scripture, but what is he doing? He's telling a story. And what story is the apostle Paul telling right here, inspired by God? Creation story. You're all saying it quietly. Yeah, he's telling the creation story. He bases the understanding of order and authority in the church and, and in everything all the way back to the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. Let us, okay, I'm gonna pause right there. This is the beginning. We don't know anything. Who's the us at this point? Is it, is it God? Is it God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Yes, okay, gosh, you guys are, come on, wake up here. Stay with me, okay? A little too serious, come on. It says, let us, so, so God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, we, we make man in our image, okay? So he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. It's important that we see this. Okay, so moving down a little bit further. Genesis chapter two, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I learned, the first time I read this this way, I don't know why I missed it, but he acknowledges something. God says, wait, hang on a second. I'm gonna make Adam, and he gives Adam, he says, you have dominion over like essentially the size, Garden of Eden, they, they estimate the size of like North America. Take care of it. And he's like, alone? Okay, like I got this, right? And he's struggling, like, so he does this. And then, and then God says, he identifies before Adam identifies it. Hear this, before he even notices it, God says, oh, it's not good for man to be alone. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because he did what? Let us make God in our image. Right? It wasn't, it wasn't a single person. So to just have Adam would have not been true to the image of God because he says it's male and female. Role, female, gender, male and female are the imago Dei, the image of God. So he says that. He says, let us make them, uh, I need to find him a helper. Now, focus on that word because many people are like, oh, helper, I don't like it. Now out of, the, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all to the birds and to every beast of the field. So what does God do? God sets Adam down in that perfect spot in the garden and he starts bringing the animals to him in pairs. You got, you got the, the two bears, the male and the female, the two frogs, I don't know if you could tell if they're male and female, but either way, they're coming, right? And he, he, he starts naming these things, which is a sign of authority. To give name is a sign of authority. He allows, he gives his authority to Adam and says, Adam, you name them. But what does it do to Adam? We see it right here. He says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. He shows the need to him. He creates the need in Adam and says, look, there's, there's nothing. So for Adam, there was not a, a found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, now this is at last, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Authority naming, just so you guys know, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast 
to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And everyone's like, amen, right? Naked, not ashamed. This is a beautiful picture. Now, hear me on this. The roles are in place before the fall. You see that? The, the, he, he says, Adam, I, I want you to have dominion. I want you to take care of the garden. And then Adam's like, I can't do it alone. And so he provides for him a helper. And that word helper, by the way, Psalms say it over and over again in reference to God. So for women that are like, man, I don't like the idea of being a helper. Like, look, it's, it's used in reference to God. It's used in reference to the Holy Spirit through Scripture. A helper fit. Now, what is the, what is the role of the helper? Both man and female are created, what? Equally the image of God. There's no, there's no less than, there's no hierarchy the way that we understand it. They are equal in value, equal in importance, equal in gifting, but God sets up distinct roles. He says, Adam, you take care of this. You do this, and I will provide for you someone to come alongside you and work with you and do this together. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The role distinctions are there, and this is what God is having us to try and learn in Corinthians. Why is it important in the church, and the gathered church, to have these distinct roles? because it was important to God to create this order in the garden. God wasn't pulling from a, a, a warehouse when he created the earth. He wasn't like, oh man, I, I mean, I, I guess there's one male and female. I guess I'll just use those. Like, no, he created everything out of nothing. He's the only one that will ever create everything out of nothing. We always create something out of something. God's good. There's a, there's a there's these things. So gender roles are in place long before. I wrote it in my notes this way. Both as humans and Christians, women are completely equal to men, worth, abilities, intellect, or spirituality. Many women are obviously superior to men in abilities, intellect, maturity, and spirituality. Many women in here say, amen, right? God established the principle of male authority and female subordination for the purpose of order and complementation, not on the basis of any innate superiority in men. It's not because men are more superior, that's why he does it. He does it because this is the order and the authority that God designed for us to thrive in. That's what we see here. So then we get a little bit further in, in, in Genesis and we see what happens, right? Satan, um, as a serpent, kind of pushes on Eve. We find out that he's like, hey, did God really say you die if you ate this? They had two rules to follow. Take care of the garden and don't eat of that tree. And they're, they're like 50% right away on, on two rules. And so they go to the thing and they start eating at this apple. And they, they obviously, this, Adam is right there. We see that because he take, she takes a bite. She's like, mm, this is good. Here, Adam. So the whole conversation, this whole thing happens where all of a sudden, everything that God has established in order and authority is usurped. And when authority is usurped, we lose order. And then what, what happens? We see it in Genesis chapter three. Right after, um, right after uh, Adam totally passive and like doesn't really own anything of his parts. Like you notice what happens is God says, he comes to look for Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve realized they were naked and they put figs over them. And so they hid from God, right? They hide from God. And they're like, he's like, where are you? And he's like, I hid from you. And then what does God do? He doesn't go, hey, Eve, what did you do? He goes, Adam, what did you do? He goes to the authority. Hey, what did you do, Adam? You, you made a mistake here. And then what does Adam do? Like every ridiculous human being or a man in this, oh, it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. Right? He, blames, he blames Eve. Eve blames Satan. And God says, this is, it's, all, it's all lost. The order, the authority, the way it was supposed to be is done. And they're ripped from the garden. 
And then there's a curse, and he makes a commitment to, to destroy Satan through Christ, which is a foreshadow of that, which is beautiful. But then he comes to the woman, and he says this. He says, to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I am so sorry, women. Like, that seems like such a bad curse. I've seen that. It's hard and horrible, right? Um, in the pain, in pain you shall bring forth children. And then here it is. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. Now, we have to understand those two words. Desire and rule are both angry and hard words. Just a little bit further down, just in case you're wondering what desire meant here. So what he's saying is, look, Eve, your desire is going to be to step over and rule, to take the position of Adam. And Adam, your desire is going to be to be domineering or chauvinistic and to, to, to oppress your women or your wife. And it's not that God approves of either of those, but that's what comes in the fall. Just a little bit further down in, in Genesis chapter four, six through seven, when the Lord is talking to Cain, he's like, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well with, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, here it is. Sin is crouching at the door. You want to know how negative this desire word is right here? Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the same phrase in Hebrew used there. And here we are today, thousands of years later, perpetuating the same struggle inside the church and outside the church, where women are being oppressed, so they then roll up, and men are being domineering, or men are doing what Adam does, which is being very passive and not stepping into the role and leading. And you see this happen over and over and over again. Ultimately, what you see out of the fall is two types of leadership that happen. There's the, there's the passive role, which was Adam, which was just not, I mean, all he had to do is be like, hey, Eve, no, hang on a second. I understand he's, he's, he's influential, but let's, let's think about this. Do we really want to go against God's authority? Like, he could have stepped in. He could have intervened in there. He could have led. But instead, he was passive. He was like eating popcorn. I mean, oh, this is interesting. A snake's talking to me, right? Like, I mean, whatever it was, right? Like, he was in place. So Eve eats and then gives it to him, and he eats. He took a passive role. And guys, man, hear me on this. There are two many men operating like Adam in the church today. We are way too passive. I see in this role as one of your pastors, I see so many women that just want so badly for their husband to step up, to lead them spiritually, to lead them emotionally, to, to, to draw into them and to push and do those things. And then the other side of the spectrum for men, which is in the curse, is that there's, you see a domineering men Chauvinism, we've, we've seen, history has just shown it way too much, both in and outside the church. It's, it's atrocious. Where men see women as less than, and they're, they're less valuable, and so they get, they get squashed and stamped, stomped on, and they, they're, they're oppressed. And those two failures of leadership have worked their way into the church. Chauvinism in the traditional way, where they say, oh yeah, people, men and women are equal, but there's a hierarchy. There's an org chart where men are at the top and women are at the bottom. And we've seen the church perpetuate this over and over and over again. Or swing to the other side, the super passive side. It's called an egalitarian view where they're both equal and there are no role distinctions. And we just try and do, with all, do away with all order God has done. And both are wrong in the eyes of scripture. The narrative from the beginning to the end says something that is complementarian, which is that women and men are equal, 100% equal in value, in, in love from the Lord, in brought, glory brought to God. There's nothing, there's not a, a single edge one way or the other, but God has designed for men and women as the image of God to show a beautiful order of authority and submission. And that's what 
God wants us to take out of this book is to recognize that to have order and authority is actually what God created in the garden before the fall. He had boundaries before the fall. He created it in a very beautiful way. And it was in, here's the thing, hear me on this, please hear me on this. When those roles go well, people thrive, thrive. When a husband submits himself to the Lord and leads the way that God has commanded him, like Christ loves the church, that's the standard, in case you're wondering. Women thrive, children thrive. Look, this is, this is what God views authority. The same author here used by God in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27, just in case you're like, what does leadership look like? Husbands, love your wives. There you go. That's what it looks like, guys. Love your wives. Love them. Okay, well, how should I love them? I'm glad you asked because it says it right afterwards. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I bet you do as you didn't ask, right? It's like, oh, man, that's really hard. I feel that sometimes daily with my wife. Love my wife the way that Christ loved the church to give himself up for her. He gave everything for her. Why? And here it is. Having cleansed her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We talk about bringing honor to one another. Could you imagine if you were leading men in a way that your wife could be that? That's the expectation. He goes on and talks about women respecting, submitting to their husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Again, Jesus is the model of both the leadership and the submission. We look to Jesus no matter where we are. And when we do that, when we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, we stop looking at the messed up, sinful person in front of us. And instead, just keep doing what God commands of us in the order that he's commanded of us. He says, this is why you should do it. It's all based on the created order. He goes on then in here and says, look, it, <laughs> verse 10, that is why if a wife ought to have a symbol of authority. So he's saying, look, she should have her head covered so that the church around her and everyone knows that she is under authority. It'd be wrong for a wife to not be an authority. Look, cultural things change. The scriptures still tell us to greet one another with a brotherly kiss. How weird would it be if I kissed every one of you when you came in? nice to see you. Like, I think my wife might get mad, right? Cultural things change, and that's okay. We're to, we're to see what God wants, the main point of what he wants out of it. Verse 10, so if, as a woman, um, so she should wear her head covering. She should, she should operate with the way that God created her in the original design. That was why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And I'll be honest with you guys, that's a really, really hard, hard text that many scholars are like, yeah, let's see what makes sense here. There's about four or five different views that make a ton of sense on this. I really think this is kind of an ancillary point to the, the subject, so I don't want to get sidetracked on it. kind of think the best way to understand this is, is thinking of 1 Corinthians 6 when he talks about the angels and us being co-heirs with Christ and how we rule over the angels. So we will rule over the angels with Christ as co-heirs. So in theory, he's saying, look, since the angels are, are watching, show them that you are as someone who will be in authority in submission to authority so that when we judge them, they will see us operating in authority. Again, that's one view. You guys can study a lot more on that. Have fun with it. Verse 11 goes on, says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are under God. Okay, so he's, he's saying, look, I want to make sure you don't misunderstand something here. 
It's very important. And this is, this is what he's doing. He's establishing. He's saying, he's saying don't, don't lose sight of what is completely inseparable. You are interdependent as male and female. You can't run from each other. Woman was created from man, so man is born through women. Then, therefore, the headship of man that we see in verse 3, expressed by the head covering of woman, does not justify male self-sufficiency or female insignificance. Look what he's doing. It's brilliant. He's showing he's laboring against both effects of the fall, male domination, right, this arrogant maleness, or insubordinate femaleness. He's, he's pushing on both and saying, look, you need each other. You're born of each other. You can't, you, can't, you can't exist or work without each other. In the garden, it was perfect. Male, female, authority, helper, brilliant. The same is true in this fallen world. You still need each other. It's not a chain of command thing that's going on here because the prophet has direct access to the instructions from Christ. Rather, the woman's acknowledgement of the man's subordinate human headship is an expression of her prior and controlling submission to Christ, who is in creation appointed unique roles for man and woman. That's what he's establishing here. Verse 13 goes on um, for the sake of time. Judge for yourselves. It is proper for a wife to pray to God. With, is, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a head covering. So he's basically saying, look, it, it, this is just, it makes sense. Women have long hair, men don't. I understand that our culture switches that completely different. But in this context, he's saying it's just natural. This is just what works. Why would we try and blur the lines? Worship God as a man, created by God as a man, doing so as a man if you're a man, and do the same if you're a woman. There's no reason to blur those lines. Behavior, mannerisms, clothing, or hairstyles that suggest that a person is sexually unfaithful to his or her spouse, promiscuous, homosexual, or the devotee of some non-Christian religion or cultic or occult sect are entirely inappropriate for Christians, particularly in the church, is what he's saying. He's saying, look, Pay attention to culture. We've already established this. This was established in the last three chapters. Pay attention to where God has you. Don't put something in the way of God bringing the gospel forward in people's lives. And then he goes on in verse 16. He says, if any of you, if anyone is inclined to, to be contentious, you think, like this is a pretty tough section of scripture. He goes on and says, we have such, no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So I understand that many of you have been triggered and many of you are probably struggling with this and you, you have a lot of questions. So please, Email me at jonathan at revolution22.org, okay? And I will work with you on all of those. No, he says, look, there's, there's no other teaching. Even if you don't agree with this, this is the teaching of Jesus. This is the narrative that's been told since the creation. You can disagree all you want, but the point of contention, it's kind of, it's kind of pointless because at the end of the day, this is what it means. This is what the teaching of the apostles have been passed down on. So don't be contentious. As order is... So valuable in the church. We have seen culturally, if you just look in our history, when, when there is no order, chaos ensues. I have um, four kids, my three oldest daughters. I'm going to use them as an example because I think it fits for us. Ava, my oldest, um, they all have a different view of what order looks like in their bedrooms, okay? Ava, my oldest, I remember one time uh, Jen and the girls were out of town and I needed to find a marble for, I had a prop for a sermon one time and I was like, I called Jen. Let me, Do you know where you have any marbles in the house? She's like, no. 
And she's like, maybe Ava does. And so she hands me the phone to Ava. And he's like, Ava, I'm like, Ava, do you have a, mar- a marble? And she's like, oh, yes, Dad. Head downstairs, open the closet, the left side of the closet, three, three shirts down, there's this little box, and like open up, and there's like a single marble. And I'm like, who remembers that, right? Like, like everything is in its spot, and it makes sense. And it's like, man, like borderline type A, but we'll just, we'll just pretend it's not that right now. We'll try, and, we'll try and see God sanctify it, right? It's in order. Now, Olivia, she has order too, but it only makes sense to her. It's like, why are your socks and shirts together? Because I put them on in that order. It's like, what? Oh, but it doesn't even make sense, but oh, okay. Like, like she has order, but it's, 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 it's to her own way. Now, Priscilla, I love her. She has order by shoving everything in the closet or underneath something, right? Like, that's her order. Well, which one's right? Every single one of you can relate to some, one of them. Some of you are like, oh, Ava all the way. Others, you're like, shoot me if I was Ava. That's horrible, right? Like, I'd rather be Olivia. And everyone has it. This is the problem when we are left to our own to try and define order based on our culture. This is the problem because who's right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, the authority, Jen and I, need to tell our kids what we're expecting of them to find order and help them grow in ways. Help Ava maybe loosen up a little bit and help Priscilla pick something up, you know, like, like whatever it may be. Like, this is why it's an issue. Whenever there is no authority or no order, we, we, we flounder. And let me, let me just say this. Please hear me on this. I'm speak, speak to the women in here real quickly. I want to acknowledge that you have been completely, completely destroyed by history in the way that men have led you, but not entirely. I want to acknowledge that there are women in here today that had no father figure in their life and praise God that God relates himself to a father way better than any earthly one. And I want to acknowledge that the many of you women in here are like, man, I want my husband to lead me. I just want him to lead me. And I want to acknowledge that that's a reality and that's there. It doesn't mean that just because it's not happened or isn't happening, that it's the wrong order. Just because authority has been horribly abused does not make authority a bad thing. God has authority. Look at, look at it this way. You can deny God all you want, but you're still under his authority. Scriptures say that every, one day every knee will bow. I understand that authority has been wrecked in people's lives. I understand. I want to acknowledge that oppression has been felt. But if you completely reject order because of what you've seen in history or have personally experienced, you reject God and his order. Left on our own, we will try to create orders that we think are best for us, but God already has order. We will try to use tools and knowledge to justify our independence from God when he says, you are interdependent on one another and me. This whole independent culture that we live in, that is not the way of God. That is the culture. That is not the way the kingdom of God is to operate. We are together in this. I have seen, um, actually, as, as your pastor, I want to acknowledge something. I, I know, I know, I know, I know that this has been just done really poorly in the past. I know that. But, and I know that there are many women in here that are wanting to be led, and I know there are many men in here that are acting like Adam, very passive, or, or they're, they're falling through with the curse and being dominate, domineering and, and, and oppressive in a way. But here's the beautiful thing. Over the, the small time of me being one of your pastors, what I've seen, I have seen many men learn how to lead by a very healthy submission from their wife. And I've seen many women learn how to be a healthy, submissive person because of the healthy leadership that men have shown. At the end of the day, let me just say this. It's not, a, I'll do it when you do it. It's, I'm gonna do what is my part to the Lord because that's what's commanded of me. And that's what scripture says. I wrote it in my notes this way. Worship is the act of praising and glorifying God. 
for one for, for who God is, which at the same time entails that human beings recognize who they are as being under God and in Christ. The proper human response to redemption is that both women and men not only bear witness to who they are, but also to whose they are. When we operate inside of the roles that God has given us, we are displaying to the world and the church and everyone around us that we are the Lord's and we want his order. You can't, you can't have his order without his authority and you can't be under his authority without being in his order. They, they, they don't, they're not mutually exclusive. They work together. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna worship. But you, we, have, we have to settle on that. You can't, you can't expect to, to enjoy the order that God has created without giving yourself to his authority. Because if you don't give yourself to his authority, you're not going to step up and, and submit or lead the way that God commands of you. And you can't, you can't in any way, shape, or form say I'm under his authority and not have order. That's, that's, the, that's what we've seen. There is no authority-less order under God, and there is no orderless authority under God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your willingness to give us to preserve for us uh, scriptures that, that transcend culture, that no matter what culture throws at us, you can continue to see your word push through and bring a truth and a wisdom for us to live inside of the culture and the time that you have us in. Father, I wanna pray for the men in this room right now. I know there are a lot of men in here that are either A, feeling um, guilty for the lack of leadership they've done, or maybe they're feeling convicted for the way that they've been domineering or not, not in, a, in a gentle way led their wives. God, I pray that you just, your spirit would just work on them. Pray that he would, just, he would just continue to show them what the model of Jesus looks like. What does it really mean to love our wife in a way that she can be adorned and, and spotless and, and blemish-free and presented in a, in a holy and amazing way before you, God? God, I pray for the men in here that, um, that never had a male authority in their life to show them how to do it. God, I pray that we would be a community of people that would push into each other would submit to one another and say, help me understand this. What does it look like? How do I, how do I lead my family through this way, God? God, I pray that we'd be a men that are actively pursuing leadership, not so that we can try and tell everyone what to do, but so that we can love our wife like Christ loves the church. God, for the individuals that are in here that aren't married, that aren't, aren't a part of that, that relationship yet, God, I pray that they would see the way that men and women are operating in both submissiveness and, and authority and, and, and ultimately mutual submission to you, God, that it would just be... It would be a moment where everyone goes, that is the image of God, male and female, in the roles that he created and watch people thrive. God, for our children down below, I pray that, that we would be a community of people that fill in the gaps of the fatherless or the singles or the single parents. Father, you, you are a good God. And you have given us order and forgive us for the ways that we have allowed culture to seep into it. God, if there's anyone in here, no matter where they are following you, if they, they've submitted their life to you, but culture is dictating it, not your kingdom, God, I pray that you just cut that away from them. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would see that there's an order and authority that they can submit themselves to that would bring, bring immense peace and joy to their life. And we know you're good. And I pray for a, a mighty work. I pray for a leading in this pray that you would give every one of us the ability to hear your spirit and to listen to him and to submit ourselves to your scripture and to him entirely, not just conditionally. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.